Welcome to the RUF City Campus Podcast. New York City is home to nearly 1 million undergraduate students, and RUF City Campus exists to reach those students with the gospel and equip them to serve. In order to accomplish this mission, we rely 100% on generous donations from individuals and churches. If you'd like to make a donation, please visit givetoruf.org today. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Every semester in RUF, we study the Bible together on Wednesday nights. We eat food, and we sing songs, and we pray, and we study the Bible together. And the reason we study the Bible is because if you do not identify as a Christian, but you are curious about Christianity, studying the Bible is the best way to learn about what Christianity is all about. And if you do identify as a Christian, and you want to grow as a Christian, the best way to do that is to study the Bible. So we do that together when we gather on Wednesdays. And this semester, we are studying the book of Colossians. Um, Some of it is printed there for you in your handout. The book of Colossians is a letter written in the first century by a man named Paul to this group of Christians in an ancient city called Colossae. And at the heart of this book, a huge theme in this book is change. Can people change? Can you change? Can I change? Can the world change? Like, Can things get better for you, for me, for the world? That's at the very heart of the book of Colossians. And at this particular time of year, change is rattling around in a lot of our hearts and minds because it's a new year, it's a new semester, and the beginning of a new year, the beginning of a new semester, for many of you, that that, um, awakens new zeal for personal change. New zeal for the way that you're going to be a new you in 2018. You've set goals You've made resolutions. You're going to be more compassionate. You're going to be more confident. You're going to be more involved in RUF, in church. Um, You're going to study the Bible more. You're going to pray more. You're going to be more devoted to serving the community. You're going to be kinder and more accepting and more forgiving of the people around you. You're going to study more and watch Netflix less and get sucked into the Reddit rabbit hole fewer times every day. And, like, you've made goals, right? New you in 2018. So for some of you, this, this new year, new semester, is, there's lots of zeal for how you're going to be better. For some of you, not so much new zeal as the same old cynicism. You're pretty sure that the problems that you had in 2017 have followed you into 2018. You're pretty sure that they're going to follow you into 2019. You're pretty sure that the person that you were yesterday and the person that you are today will also be the person that you are tomorrow. And you're sort of like, you know what, I, I just... I am who I am, and sometimes that's great, and sometimes that's not so great, and I'm not really sure I'm going to be able to change. In Colossians, what the Apostle Paul is suggesting to us is that real, deep, substantive, and lasting change is possible. It's possible for you, it's possible for me, it's possible for the entire world. But the catalyst for that change is not your goals, it's not your resolutions, it's not your hard work. All of those are fine things, by the way. I'm not saying don't make goals and try to improve yourself. But the catalyst for deep, real, substantive, and eternal change is none of those things. It's news. It's good news. That's what is at the heart of Colossians, and that's what we're going to look at tonight and really all semester. So what is that news? Colossians chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Since this is God's word and not my own, let's pray for a moment and ask him to help us as we look at it. God, would you open our, our eyes tonight and soften our hearts so that we might actually hear um, and understand and not just hear and understand, but believe and maybe even take joy in the good news that you have for us here in this particular passage. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So right here in the middle of these verses that we just read is a word. And it's a word that doesn't get used that much outside of the church. It gets used a lot inside the church. But we don't always define exactly what we mean by it. And that word is gospel. You probably, if you've been around the church for a while, you've probably heard that word before. What does gospel mean? Well, in the Greek, gospel is actually two words smashed together. It's the word for good and the word for message or messenger. You is good. And um, angelion is the word where we get our word angel, which means messenger. So it's those two words put together. Euangelion is what gospel means. Good message or good news. And everything in this passage and actually everything in this book of Colossians, this letter that Paul wrote, hinges on this word. Euangelion, good news, good message. So what is it? What is this good news? We learn a few things about it here in this passage. The first thing that we learn about this news is that it's true. That may seem like a really boring and obvious point to make, and I'll be brief here, but, but it's an important point to make because Paul thinks it's so important that he actually mentions this idea of this good news being true twice in eight verses. Verse five, he says, you have heard before in the word of truth. He doesn't just say the word, but the word of truth. And then again, in verse six, he's saying this news that's been bearing fruit in your life since the day you heard it, you understood the grace of God and not just the grace of God, but the grace of God in truth. Now, what in the world does he mean by that? What does he mean by saying this, this gospel, this news is true? Um, think with me about the subway for a minute. I ride the subway almost every day, not quite every day, but I ride the subway on most days. And occasionally when I'm riding the subway, I marvel at it. It's amazing. It's an amazing thing. Because as I'm on the subway and I'm, I'm like have this moment of awareness that I am hurtling along at 35 to 40 miles per hour, 50 feet underground. Like over me is 50 feet of rock and dirt or river if I'm riding the F train to Queens. Um, there are, you know, on top of all that rock and dirt are streets and people and cars and buses and buildings and rats and like all that is up there. And I'm just hurtling along underneath it. And it's incredible. And every time I ride the subway and every time you ride the subway, what you're saying is all of the math 
and all of the principles of physics and all of the columns and the tunnels and all of the people who designed it and built it, you're saying they're true. They're trustworthy. They're reliable. They're so true. They're so reliable that you can build your life on them. You can live your life by them. And that's what Paul is saying when he says that this gospel, this good news is true. He's saying it's rock solid. You can build your life on it. It's subway tunnel true. Now, I know that saying something is true or even believing deeply that something is true does not make that same thing true. Our, one of our daughters, um, we're pretty clear with our kids about Santa in our house, that Santa is a fun, pretend, you know, you can hate me for this, but Santa in our house is just a fun pretend thing we do at Christmas. And yet one of our children, one of our daughters is insistent that Santa is real. <laughs> Insist, like we have open conversations in our family about how like Santa is just a fun pretend thing we do at Christmas. Isn't that fun? And she's like, no, 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 don't worry. He's coming. Don't worry. But insisting on something being true doesn't necessarily make it true. Believing that something is true doesn't necessarily make it true. Now, there are lots of reasons to doubt whether or not Christianity is true. There are lots of reasons to look at what the Bible says about Jesus or even what Jesus says about himself and think, you know, I'm, that, I don't know about that. So I'm not going to insult your intelligence and pretend like, you know, the Bible says it's true, and I'm saying the Bible says it's true, so it's true, and you just need to drop it. I'm not going to do that. We also don't have time to unpack all of those reasons right here in this time and in this space, so I'm going to make two suggestions. Um, one is, you know, I mentioned earlier that I love to drink coffee and eat food with people in this delicious city. It's not a delicious city. Delicious coffee, delicious food in this city. Um, it is sort of delicious. And uh, it... <laughs> When you come upon things about Christianity, whether you claim to be a Christian or not, and you're like, you know what? I don't know about that. Let's get coffee. Let's talk about it. Um, those, Those questions are really important to me, and I think they should be really important to you. So let's have a conversation about that. The second thing I'll say is, uh, I don't know if it's on your handout. Is the uh, Q&A number on the handout? No? Okay. Well, in the future, we will have Q&A sessions occasionally at the end of RUF on Wednesday nights. And when you come across those things, you can text in this number. It'll be on your handout, and your question will come in anonymously, and we can have a conversation about those things together in RUF. So I don't want you to hear me saying, like, it's true, just drop it and believe it. I'm not saying that. Um, I am saying these are real questions. There are real concerns about Christianity, um, and I would be remiss if we didn't wrestle with those together. So I'm inviting you to wrestle with them with me, uh, but we just can't do that right now. Now, here's the great thing about this passage and the great thing about Paul. Paul understands... That Christianity is hard. That this good news is actually pretty difficult to believe. And so what he does here in this passage is he actually gives us a reason. He says, listen, this good news is true. And one of the reasons that I know it's true is because I've seen its power. Because this good news isn't just news, it's power. I've seen its effect on your life. I've seen evidence of that power at work in your life. Think with me about earthquakes. I've never been in, actually I wasn't in an earthquake once, in Atlanta of all places, it was a minor one when I was in high school. But when an earthquake happens, you don't really see what's happening to the ground, like at the epicenter. What you see is the evidence of that. Does that make sense? Like underneath the ground, somewhere where it's invisible to us, 
the, the foundations of the earth are shifting. Tectonic plates are moving, but you don't see that. What you see is the evidence of that power all over the place. And out from that epicenter rumbles all this power and it, you know, bridges buckle and, and roads collapse and buildings collapse and crevices open up in the earth and cars fall in and like all this crazy stuff happens. But you don't actually see the earthquake, you just see the evidence of its power at work. And when Paul is describing this good news, what he's actually saying is that this good news, this gospel, that when it hits, it's like an inverse earthquake. That there's a power that happens, a power that is unleashed when it hits, and it ripples out. But as it ripples out, instead of bringing destruction like a real earthquake does, it actually brings life. It does the opposite. It brings life and renewal. Look at verse 6. He says, this gospel, this good news, which has come to you, it's come to the whole world. It is bearing fruit and it is increasing. This is what it's doing among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. He's saying this gospel, this news has come to you and it's begun bearing fruit in the world and in you. Now, what is fruit? Fruit is life where there didn't used to be life. Life where there was no life before. But previously it was just dirt. It was just a patch of dirt. And then there was a seed, and then there was some water and some nutrients and some sunshine. And then there was a tree, and then that tree grew into maturity. And then there was fruit. It was life. That out of, out of nothingness, out of just plain old dirt, grows this life. And what Paul is suggesting is that when this good news hits, it ripples out and it brings life and it brings renewal where there was none before. It's an inverse earthquake. As it ripples out, it doesn't destroy. It actually brings life and renewal. And Paul gets really specific about what this looks like in the church at Colossae in verse 4. He says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, since we heard of that moment that you you put your trust in this good news, you began to rely upon this good news, me and Timothy, we have seen the love that you have for all the saints. Now, that may sound like just a throwaway phrase for Paul at the beginning of his book, um, the beginning of his letter to this church. He's just trying to flatter them so they can hear some hard thing that he has to say later. We've seen the love that you have for all the saints. No, but it's actually very specific and very profound. It's full of significance. And the reason for that is because in the ancient world, Jews and Gentiles did not get along at all, to put it mildly. They despised one another. They would not associate with one another. They would not eat meals with one another. They would not interact with one another. One ancient Jewish rabbi who who Paul probably would have read as he was growing up and being trained, he said this. He wrote this. He wrote, Separate yourself from the Gentiles and do not eat with them and do not perform deeds like theirs and do not become associates of theirs because their deeds are defiled and all their ways are contaminated and despicable and abominable. Those are fighting words. Those aren't just fighting words. Those are like get your life ruined on Twitter kinds of words, right? You just don't say things like that to people, especially to like large groups of people. That's just not done. And so here is Paul, a Jewish man, writing to Gentiles in Colossae. There were very few, if any, Jews in the church at Colossae. And he's saying, you, you who despised me and who was despised by me, I see your love for all the saints, all of them. 
Not just the ones who grew up in the same culture as you, who think and speak and act and see the world the same way as you. Not just the ones who look like you, but the ones who are different, the ones who hated you and you hated them. I see that you love all the saints. And Paul sees that and he rejoices in that. He gives thanks to God for that. And Paul knows exactly what they are experiencing because not only Paul was not just a Jewish man, he was a Pharisee, which meant he was like obnoxiously zealous about keeping the law. Obnoxiously zealous about purity, which would have included despising Gentiles, most likely. And yet for Paul, that that good news actually got to him also, so much so that at the very beginning of his letter to these Gentile Christians, he calls them saints and brothers in verse 2. He says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, those words don't mean a whole lot to us, but those are Old Testament words, saints and brothers. Those were words that other Hebrew people used to describe other Hebrew people, not words that Hebrews used to describe Gentiles ever. And yet Paul here is saying something has happened. (laughs) This news has hit me and it's beginning to change me so that the people that I previously would have said, I want nothing to do with you, I now call my family. The people that I previously would have considered my enemy, I now call my family. And then he goes a little bit further. At the end of verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now that is shorthand for a blessing that was well known in the Old Testament. That in the book of Numbers, the priests would stand up over all of God's people, the Hebrew people, and they would sing a blessing over the people. And part of that blessing was, Grace to you from God our Father. May he turn his face towards you and give you his peace. And Paul is saying, listen, that grace and that peace is being extended to you by our Father. To you, Gentiles. People that I would have considered out, like beyond the pale. That grace and that peace is being extended to you. So how can I not extend that same grace and peace to you also? Paul is calling previously people that he would have considered to be his enemies. He's calling them family. And he's basically saying, listen, I don't want to live in a world without you. Now, we, we like to talk a big game about being inclusive, about loving all kinds of people. But let's be honest. We all have people that we think, you know what? The world would be a better place if those people would just go away. And if they can't go away, if at least they would become more like me. Don't pretend like you don't have those people because you have those people. And it's really hard to love those people because you know what? It's hard enough to love your friends. It's hard enough to love the people that like you and you like them. That's hard because they hurt you. And they do things that are confusing. Sometimes they hurt you on purpose. Sometimes they hurt you by accident. Like it's hard enough to love the people that love you back. It's even harder to love the people that hate you that despise you and you despise them. I, I would I challenge you to commit yourself for one day to giving thanks for, celebrating, serving, honoring, and loving, sacrificing yourself for the people that you wish would just go away. Try to do that for one day. You'll be done by noon. If you make it to lunch, I'll be shocked. Because that kind of love does not flow naturally out of us. It just doesn't. It doesn't flow naturally out of me. It doesn't flow naturally out of you. 
You know, we think if serving you, if caring for you fits nicely into my agenda for myself, then that is great. But if it doesn't, tough cookies. I don't think that's a real phrase, but I just used it. It is a, it is a real phrase? Good, we're going for it. Tough cookies. But what Paul is saying is, listen, something has been unleashed in this people's life. Something has been unleashed in the church at Colossae. It's an inverse earthquake and it's rippling out. And it's bringing life. It's bringing love. And he's saying, look, this is one reason that I know this good news is actually true. is because I see evidence of it. I see this power working itself out, turning enemies into families. Now, how? How is that possible? Like, how does that actually happen? What, what is the epicenter of this earthquake? Where does all this life and love flow out of? This good news is true. This good news is a power. And lastly, this good news is a person. The, the epicenter of this is a, is a person. H.G. Wells, the famous historian, about 100 years ago, he wrote this. He said, now it is interesting and significant, isn't it, that a historian like me, setting forth in that spirit, he's not a Christian, by the way, setting forth in that spirit without any theological bias whatsoever, should find that he simply cannot portray the progress of humanity honestly without giving a foremost place to a penniless teacher of Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus left no impress on the historical record of his time, yet more than 1,900 years later, a historian like myself, who doesn't even call himself a Christian, finds the picture centering irresistibly around the life and character of this simple, lovable man. Do you hear what Wells is saying? He's saying, listen, I'm not a Christian. I've not placed my faith in Jesus. And yet, as a historian, I cannot make sense of humanity making any progress. I cannot make sense of enemies learning to love, of people loving to learn their, love their enemies. I can't make sense of that out of the life and the character of Jesus. This good news is a person. That's what he's saying. It's a person that changes history, that changes people. It's not an idea. It's not a strategy. It's not a philosophy. Now, how is that possible? Paul has a couple of ways of describing that here in this passage. The first way is in verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now that little prepositional phrase, in Christ, packs a punch. It's all over the book of Colossians. It's all over the New Testament. In Christ, in Jesus, in Him. If you read through your New Testament, especially the letters, you will see that language all over the place. Now what does it mean? When you're in a taxi, think about what it means to be in a taxi. When you're in a taxi, what is true of that taxi becomes true of you. And what is true of you becomes true of that taxi. When you're in a taxi, if, the, if it slows down, you slow down. If it comes to a screeching halt, then you come to a screeching halt. If, if it gets stuck in traffic, then you get stuck in traffic. And conversely, what is true of you becomes true of the taxi. If you step into that taxi and you smell good, that taxi will smell good. If you step into that taxi and you smell bad, that taxi will definitely smell bad. If you step into that taxi and you have had too much to drink, or you get a little bit car sick, and your lunch, which was previously just true of you, comes out, it will now be true of the taxi as well. And that is what it means, as silly as it sounds, that is what it means to be in Christ. That what is true of Him becomes true of you. And what is true of you becomes true of Him. Now, let's think about this for a minute. What is true of us? What is true of you? What, what is the, 
What is the conversation that you have with yourself about yourself all day? Because you are having a conversation with yourself about yourself all day, whether you realize that or not. And there are lots of different shapes and forms that that conversation takes. But two of the main threads of that conversation are guilt and shame. Guilt says, guilt is preoccupied with the things that you have done. Guilt says, what have I done? I have been selfish. I have lied. I've been manipulative. I have cheated. I have, I have done that thing that I said I would never do. I have done the thing that I hate having to admit that I have done. That guilt is preoccupied with your, with your actions. Shame is preoccupied with yourself. Guilt says, what have I done? And shame says, what kind of a person am I that I have done that? Who am I? This is not who I want to be. And this is a lot of the conversation that we are having with ourselves all day as we rehearse our interactions, the things that we say, the things that we do, the things that we think. It's guilt and shame. And usually, as we're having our conversation with guilt and shame all day long, we're going back and forth between dismissing them and, uh, and despairing in them. And when we dismiss them, we say, oh, well, you know, I was tired, I was stressed out, and I just needed to blow off a little bit of steam, and so that's why I acted that way, that's why I did that thing. Or, or we say, you know what, that, they were asking for it. They were a jerk to me first, so I was completely justified in being a jerk back to them. We just dismissed them. Ah, shut up, guilt and shame. I'm not worried about you. On the other end of the spectrum, we, we completely, we get washed over by them and we despair. What kind of a monster am I? And we get stuck in this cycle of shame and guilt where we looking, we just can't take our eyes off of ourselves and we're thinking, I, I really actually am this horrible. This really is who I am and I hope no one learns these things about me. And we get locked in this dialogue and we cannot shut up guilt and shame. And I think the reason that we cannot shut them up is because, because we know that they're actually right. They're actually right. They're speaking half-truths, but they are speaking truths about us. That we actually do inexcusable and horrible things. And we do inexcusable and horrible things because there is something wrong with us. There is something busted about me and about you. When I wake up in the morning, my life is aimed full steam ahead at serving and protecting and taking care of me. I'm not naturally disposed to loving and serving and taking care of you or my wife or my children. That does not flow naturally out of me. That that is my default setting. That is your default setting. You do not wake up in the morning when your feet hit the floor. You're not thinking, how can I go love and give of myself for other people? You're thinking, what can I do for me? That's our default setting. Now, that's what's true of us. What's true of Jesus? To put it simply, the opposite. The exact opposite is true of Jesus. When the Gospel of Mark, the writer of Mark, Mark's Gospel, he says, the Son of Man, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That his entire life is aimed not at himself, but at others. Aimed at seeking and saving, aimed at giving of himself so that others might have life. Later on, just a few verses later in this chapter, Paul describes this. He says, listen, Jesus came, the Son of Man took on flesh, 
The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. He was fully God and fully man. And the reason that he came was to reconcile to himself all things. Recon- to make right. That's what it means to reconcile. That everything that is wrong with you and everything that is wrong with me and everything that is wrong with the world, that Jesus came to put it back together, to make it right. And his entire life was aimed at that. And you know what Paul says? You know how he finishes that sentence? He says this is how he's going to reconcile all things. He's going to make peace by the blood of his cross. That his entire life was devoted not to himself, but actually of giving of himself, dying of himself, literally, to give others life. So now, what does that mean to be in him? What it means to be in Christ means that what is true of you, everything that guilt and shame says about you, that you're pretty sure is true. Everything that guilt and shame says about you, it, sticks to, it becomes true of Jesus and it sticks to him. That every time your conscience, every time guilt and shame, those like little voices behind your head that start speaking to you, everything that they say is laid upon Jesus on the cross. And it is crucified with him. It dies with him and goes to the tomb, goes to the grave with him. And it has no power over you whatsoever. It doesn't say anything true about you anymore because it is dead. It is crucified with Jesus. That's what it means to be in Christ. God's wrath for sin was poured out on Jesus instead of you in that moment. And your guilt and shame have no power over you anymore. So what is true of you sticks to Jesus and becomes true of him. But what is true of Jesus sticks to you and becomes true of you. Jesus lived the perfectly loving life. He never manipulated. He never abused He never used his power and privilege for selfish gain. He never deceived. He never gossiped. And he always loved. Think about the beauty of actually knowing a person like this. He always loved perfectly from the core. That everything that he ever did, everything that he thought, all of his motivations, all of his words, all of his actions were pure, unadulterated love. And what it means to be in Jesus is to be treated by God as though that life was your life. As though that perfect life was your life. You get the credit for it. My wife and I used to watch The Bachelor. um, And I, I find it fascinating on The Bachelor that these women fall in love with this man and they go on these elaborate dates, right? They go... They go swim in the Caribbean with, uh, around the reef with, uh, you know, beautiful fish and sharks and it's these amazing experiences. And they jump out of airplanes and they climb mountains and they go into caverns and they, you know, they have these wonderful candlelit dinners where I don't think they ever eat a bite of food. I'm not really sure. But these, these women fall in love with these men. And in many ways, they get credit for these incredible dates that they're going on. But you know what? Those men made no decisions about those dates. There is an army of producers and researchers behind those men saying, this is what you're going to do, and this is when you're going to do it, and this is what you're going to say, and this is how you're going to say it, and you will do this. But those men get all the credit. The women don't fall in love with the producers and the researchers who are orchestrating this whole thing. They fall in love with the man. They get credit for something they didn't do, and that's what it means to be in Christ. He lived that perfectly beautiful, wonderful life. And when God looks at you, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. 
You are my child. You are my daughter. You are my son in whom I have delight. That's what it means to be in Christ. The other word that Paul uses here and elsewhere to describe this is grace. Grace, right there in verse 6. This good news has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It's beginning to bear fruit. It's increasing. It's doing this among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Since the day you understood grace, boom. Earthquake. Changed. Power unleashed. And why is that? The reason for that is because grace means you get a party when you deserve punishment. You get a party when you deserve punishment. I'll close with this. Many of you are probably familiar with this story. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a story about a father who has two sons. And one of those sons looks at the father and he says, Listen, you're better to me dead than you are alive. He's a wealthy man. And he says, Listen, I would rather have your stuff than you. So give me my inheritance now and I'm going to take off. And so the father does it. The father gives the son his share of the inheritance and the son runs off. And I'm sure many of you have heard the story before and it doesn't take too long for him to squander all of that wealth and it's gone. And he's living in the pit. His life is over. He's ready to take his own life. And as he's reasoning with himself, he realizes, you know what? The servants and the slaves in my father's house actually have it better than I do right now. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home and I'm going to grovel. I'm going to beg my father. I know I don't have a right to be his son anymore. I know I've completely forfeited that right. But I'm going to beg him to let me back into his house. Not as a son, but as a slave. As a servant. And so the son sort of gathers himself and he begins to head back from the far country back to his father's house. And as he draws near to his father's house, what happens? The father sees him. And he he picks up his robe and it's very undignified and he runs across the field to his son. And this is what's surprising because as you're you're hearing Jesus tell this story, as you're reading through it, you think, ah, the father's going to get him, right? He's going to run out there and smack him around and say, get out of here, don't come to this house, you're not welcome here anymore. But what does he do? He runs. He embraces him. He covers him in his kisses. He takes off his royal ring and says, wear this. He takes off his royal robe and says, wear this. He doesn't hear a single word of the son's speech. No groveling. No begging. He won't even let the son speak. He says, this is my son. I thought you were dead and now you're alive. Let's kill the fatted calf. Let's have a party. Do you want to be changed? Do you want to have a life that that bears fruit? That bears the fruit of love? Not just loving those that are easy to love, but loving those that are difficult to love. Do you want to have peace? Do you want to have joy? Ask God to help you believe this good news. Jesus got the punishment that you and I deserve so that we could get the party. Would you pray with me?